Hi, everybody. It's Friday. I don't know when this podcast will go out. I had a wonderful experience and so much gratitude with our guest today. Today, we had a live, an Instagram live and a live podcast with Lisa Sharon Harper. She is the author of several books and she's an activist and she leads trainings that increase clergy and community leaders' capacity to organize people of faith toward a just world. She is also a historian, whether she designates herself as a historian or not. We received an incredible history lesson today on so much, the slave trade, racism, the roots of of white supremacy, so much that I just beg of you to listen. Listen to the history that she takes us through in the first 30 minutes, because it is not history that we have read in our textbooks. It is not what we as people of European descent have known. And if we have known and we've turned away from it, that's another ball of wax. Um, We have been living in a system designed for us not to know. But we know now. If you listen to this podcast, you will know. And it will make you angry. And it will make you feel shame. And no one wants to feel that. And Lisa is very quick to say, don't feel shame. Feel rage. Feel anger towards what is happening in our country right now and towards what we have been duped as as people of European descent. And I keep saying that instead of white people, and you'll find out why. But this is not a personal growth process that we're going through right now in our country. This is not us saying, oh, my name is Meredith Atwood, and I have a podcast, and here are my token Black friends and people of African descent. However they want to be referred, each individual gets that choice. But here are my token friends, and I'm going to do podcasts, and I'm going to disappear into the woodwork. I am not about that life. I have never been. I am not about knowing and turning away. And I want you to feel the same way. And you will. You will when you hear it. So I encourage you to hear it. This is um, an hour and 20-minute recording, and I encourage you to listen. That's what we can do right now is listen and then begin to plant new seeds. And she talks about, Lisa talks about exactly how we can go about this. This is not a temporary part of my world, you guys. This is not a temporary podcast episode. I fully intend to stand with my friends, (laughs) my friends who are of color, And and look, I'm clumsy with this. I don't have the right terminology. I don't have it straight. I've got BIPOC, which is black and indigenous people of color. I've got black people, African, like I don't know what to say, but I'm saying it. Listen, this is what we have to do. We have to say it no matter how clumsy it is and and say, look, I'm with you. I Like, I'm with you. And I'm going to go Google (laughs) what I need to learn. And I'm going to buy your book. This is what we have to do. This is our work. This is, and and Jen Hatmaker, go over to Lisa Harper's Facebook page. Check out her interview with Jen Hatmaker. Uh, It was fantastic. That's how I found her. 
And Jen is doing the work of the white work. And she she said in her interview, this is the work that we as white people have to do. The the activists and, and historians like Lisa who have been doing this work, it's up to us to find it and follow it and read it. So get on board with me, you guys. If you're not, let's let's do this. This we owe this to we owe it to so much. We owe it to the people, to our future. We owe it to repent for what has happened. It's a lot. It's a lot, but I am I'm with it and I am going to continue to lend my microphone and my voice wherever I can. So welcome to the new Same 24 Hours podcast. You will still get funny episodes that aren't going to, I'm not going to bring you, you know, heavy light civil rights content all the time, but I am going to bring it to you. So hold on because we're going to, you know, if you, <laughs> if you join me to do a triathlon, you can join me for this because let's do it. Let's change. Let's change from our mindset to our bodies, to our hearts and souls, to our justice system. Let's do it. All right. Enjoy this episode, you guys. Share, rate, subscribe, share this podcast, please. It helps. It helps. Hi, and welcome to the Same 24 Hours Podcast. I'm Meredith Atwood, author of the book, The Year of No Nonsense. I'm a former attorney turned writer, speaker, and Ironman triathlete. Although right now, all I really like to do is lift weights. We all have the same 24 hours, but it's what we do in those hours that leads to our greatest health, happiness, and success. It's my goal to crack the code on a life of less nonsense so we can all make the most of our 24 hours. So let's get started. Beautiful, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. <sighs> we're doing it okay we're alive on instagram hello instagram hello zoom people welcome i have a very special guest today lisa sharon harper is here you may know her you may have seen her with jen hatmaker that's how i found you and oh. um such a great conversation there and so i'm very honored that you chose to come to my platform to to chat about all the things all the things so i want to give you the opportunity to introduce yourself i can introduce you but i find when people introduce me it's always slightly off (laughs) so um (laughs) i'm gonna let you introduce you and then we will go from there if that sounds good well absolutely um thank you first of all everybody for um for joining this this conversation and um I think that there's a, I think that there, we're in a moment right now where uh, in a very interesting way, people of European descent in the United States are living. And I think in a way that I haven't experienced since Michael Brown died and was executed on the street in, in Ferguson. Um, and, uh, and, but that passed. And I'm praying and I'm hoping that this does not pass. So my name is Lisa Sharon Harper. I'm the president and founder of Freedom Road, an LLC that's dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap. We're a consulting group. We also do training and we have an institute for folks who, individuals who want to um, become anti-racist as well. Not just anti-racist, but um, anti-white white patriarchy. That doesn't mean anti-white men. It means anti-white patriarchy. We can get into what that means. Um, so, uh, 
I don't know exactly how to start. What are you know? <laughs> that was what are my questions? <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. That was it. I wanted you to introduce yourself. I wasn't like now go talk. We'll listen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but we are here to listen. That is that is primary why we're here. So let's start. And this is a big question, but I think it's important because I was watching. Um, someone recommended the Netflix documentary Thirteenth. Started watching it last night. Didn't finish it. Had other drama. But um, during that, the the first like thirty minutes of it, I thought this is not the history that I remember being taught because I feel like I might have felt a little different about that. So there was that feeling. So maybe Mm -hmm. we can start with the race laws. Um, Some of the stuff that we don't historically, I think even, and granted from our own ignorance or willful not looking at it, but we don't understand, haven't heard. And I feel like you're such a great educator on history and everyone on zoom if you come in mute yourselves please um so i don't know do you feel like that's a good place to start oh my gosh yes so so let me i just okay so let's go all the way back can we go all the way back all the way you got you you have all the time let's go (laughs) (laughs) so let's go all the way back um let's go back to 360 bc Oh, that's real far back. <laughs> Let's yes. do it. 360 BC. 360 BC. Plato. Plato is the first person in the Western Empire, Western culture, Western civilization that I could find that actually defined what race is. Now, what Plato said that race is, he said that race is the metals that different people are made of. He said some people are made of gold, others are made of silver, others are made of copper and tin, and whatever metal they are made of determines how they should serve society. Because he wrote this, yes, you see, Mm -hmm. there's there's vestiges. Why is it always one weird person who says one weird thing and then... Why are we okay? Anyway, go. go. Well, it's because, <laughs> he's the consummate Western philosopher. Now, there were a lot of people who were around him at that time, and people who who actually were his were his students who then pontificated upon that. But his Republic—that's what it is. He, it was in Book Five or Book Eight of the Republic, um, and in that in that book, which was his pontification on how the polis, the Republic, should live, how 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 it works. Right. He broke down race. And what you can see, it's arguable. People argue all the time about whether or not um, this was his his rubric was supposed to be a hierarchy or not. Right. But the reality is, is very, very quickly became a hierarchy. And and we also know that's not science. Ain't nobody made it proper. Ain't nobody made it tin. Do I get like, to choose my gold. do we get we don't get to choose our metal clearly? Science. So <laughs> it's not it's not real. It's somebody's pontific freaking right? So so basically what you have is you have um somebody who had an idea, put the idea out there, extremely powerful, um, and then he had students, and his student Aristotle, right, 10 years later in 350 BC, writes on interpretation. And in on interpretation, he's talking about language and how language tells you whether or not somebody's fully human. Hello. Right. So he's he's basically he 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 doesn't believe the barbarians, which are actually the northern Europeans are human. Hello, because their language is kind of like they actually make fun of it in the Bible. They call they say bar 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 bar. That's where we get the word barbarian. Hello. Oh, wow. um, so, you know, so anyway, so Aristotle. A Greek, right? So he he says that um, that language determines whether or not you're fully human or, or civilized, and 
Um, and, and scholars believe that what he really would have had in his head when he was pontificating on what it meant to be human, because it was commonly understood at the time, is that to be fully human is to be white, male, and able-bodied. So that's Aristotle. And then you have Socrates, I think, therefore I am, right? So what about all those people who they don't think they're thinking because they can't understand their language? Wow. They are not seen as human, as civilized or human. You're not human unless you're civilized. And you're not civilized unless I can understand your language. <laughs> you get it? You get it? So then flash forward, flash forward to 1454, you get Pope Nicholas V. Pope Nicholas V has an explorer come to him. And that explorer says, yo, Pope, I want to go uh, exploring. I need a blessing. And the Pope says, hey, I'll give you a blessing and I'll do you one better. If you come across land that is not civilized, then you have my authority to claim it for the throne and enslave its people. How's that? So that's, that's 1554. That was what was called Romanus Pontifex. And it was also, it became codified into every legal document that, that uh, of the colonizing era. So the United States of America was founded on that doctrine. It's now called the doctrine of discovery, right? Mm, yeah. uh, uh, all of colonized Africa was founded on the legal authority of that doctrine. All of South Africa, and, and not South Africa, all of Africa, all of South America um, was colonized on the legal authority of that doctrine. That doctrine, if you read um, a really great book by Mike, Mark Charles and also um, Soon Chan Ra, Dr. Soon Chan Ra, they wrote a great book called Unsettling Truths that, um, that really goes into that history, the history of the doctrine of discovery and how it was used. There were also other doctrines that were used in, um, in Australia, for example, the, the doctrine of um, terra nullius. In other mm. words, there is nobody on this land, right? And that meant that when, when um, Captain Cook, not Captain Hook, but Captain Cook, um, got off his boat in, in Australia and looked at, at the Aboriginal people, he said, no one is here. No one is here. The land is, is vacant, and therefore we have the right to claim it. And so that was the doctrine that they used to claim Australia. So, so you have that, and then you flash forward about 300 years to 1746, um, actually literally almost for 300 years, one year over, and you get Carl Linnaeus. Linnaeus was a botanist, and he was a, uh, obviously a scientist. He's the guy who discovered kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species, right? And so... <laughs> yeah. Remember that because how great Mr. Williams was in seventh grade science. <laughs> I was going to say that's really impressive. I was like, Kingdom Phylum, nope, <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> that's, that's Mr. Williams. He was really, really fabulous. Anyway, so same guy who discovered that, he, he got to thinking and he thought, hmm, if this works with fauna, certainly it works with human beings. Let's try it. So who did he put on top? He right. put on top white Europeanus of his hierarchy. And it was a hierarchy, a ladder. And then who came after that in his, in his rubric? Red Americanus. Hmm. And who came after that? Yellow Asiatus. And who came after that? On the very bottom, Black Africanus. This is a really like rudimentary racial rubric, but that's what we got. And, and it was only took 40 years to go from that to three-fifths compromise. 
in American law. And actually, right around that same time, and even before that, actually like 100, almost 100, it's like 80 years before that, um, America's legislation, which is wasn't America at the time, it was the colonies, Maryland and Virginia, were already codifying racial hierarchy into law. And that was based on something else, which we can talk about a little bit later. But I don't want to get off track. So now we have 1787, we have the Three-Fifths Compromise in the very first American Congress. And, that, and three years later, you get the first census. And on the first census, there's only one race actually on that census. And that is white. Wow. There's only one. Only one race is represented on the very first census. White. No one is here. No one. Oh, I'm sorry. It's white and slave. <laughs> so it's, it's white, literally, and slave. So the only other, like, but that slave is not a race. That's a status, right? So, right. So in the same year, they also passed in 1790, they passed the very first Immigration Act. Um, so the very first Immigration Act passed in 1790 states that only um, a white man of good character, which meant basically Christian mm. and free, could become a citizen of the United States of, well, of America. Why does that matter? So we're talking about now the first Immigration Act. Why does immigration matter? Why has it mattered over the last three and a half years so much to our president? Because the ability to immigrate means that you are giving the capacity to exercise dominion on the land. Mm. The ability to become a citizen. Citizenship means everything. In fact, the very first race law ever was based on the concept of citizenship. The question of who is a citizen was, um, and not just race law, but race, the race, like when it was in the courts in 1656, 1640s, when it was in the courts, um, I'll tell you the story of Elizabeth Key. So Elizabeth Key was a half white, half black woman who was enslaved by her father. And her father had her baptized and recognized her as his daughter, but still enslaved her. What does that say, right? So she's baptized. Um, her father is an English citizen. Now, by English common law, you could not enslave another British citizen. You just couldn't do it. They didn't allow that. And you also couldn't enslave a Christian. So here mm. this woman and citizenship in Britain was defined through the lineage of the father. Right. So her father was a British citizen and she was baptized. So she took her case to court and the courts agreed with her and she was set free wow. on the basis of the fact that her father was white, a British citizen, and she was, she was Christianized. She was, a, she was baptized. So all of a sudden, after her, all these other cases start to flow. And they said, well, wait a minute. Um, my father's a British citizen too. Uh, my father, I, I, I'm baptized too. Wait a minute. I shouldn't, I should be free too. So, the courts start freeing the stream of people of African descent who are also, who are basically the products of rape, probably, most likely, um, by their white fathers against their enslaved women. And so they have all this labor that is now being set free. So the legislatures change the law. So in Virginia, they change the law to be the law, they, instead of using English common law to be the law that, that defined the, the uh, slave or free status, they use the, um, the Roman law of partis. Partis 
um, defined this, the slave or free status or citizenship status through the lineage of the mother. Oh, geez. Yes. <laughs> and, and they did it. They said, this will be in perpetuity. Right. So if your mother or your mother's mother or your mother's mother's mother going all the way back was enslaved, then you will be enslaved and your children and your children's children and your children's children's children going all the way forward. But if you have a mother that is white, well, then that's a different status. And that's what happened in Maryland. In Maryland, Maryland followed Virginia two years later. And I only know this because I did research for my next book, which I'm totally excited about. It's called Fortune. And it's, it traces back 10 generations of my own family, which oh, wow. they were there. They were there at that time in Maryland. Um, they, got, they got to Maryland in 1682 and 1687. 1682 was um, a ship that came from Ireland. In 1687 was a slave ship and coming from Senegal. And the, um, the, the woman who was actually already married, she had an affair, um, fell in love with um, Sambo Game. And Sambo was his actual Senegalese name. And it means second son. Yeah. I, I, when, I, when, I, when I heard that, that literally made me cry because I thought, yeah. oh my God, now I know something about his life, right? So they got together. They had a child. They, they fell in love, had a child. And I think it was love because there was relationship between Fortune and her father and mother throughout her life right so yeah. and her her name was fortune and so anyway in maryland in 1662 when they followed virginia the problem they were trying to solve was exactly that the problem of white women coming from ireland and england and marrying enslaved black men and they were like we can't have this and they of course were the white patriarchy right. we can't have this so what do they do they said Okay, let, let, let's follow Virginia and let's add to it. Let's say if any white woman marries an enslaved black man, she herself will become enslaved for the duration of her husband's life until her husband dies and her children will become enslaved in perpetuity. Wow. So they, they adjusted that law about 10 years later because they realized that in the 10 years since that, um, since they had done that, like put past that law in Maryland, all these plantation owners started actually forcing their white um, indentured servants to marry their, their black um, enslaved men um, in order to get free labor. Yeah. And it was a Catholic colony. So the Catholic, the, they were like, oh, we didn't mean to do that. So sorry. <laughs> so they so said what they did was they put the power to adjudicate whether or not somebody should be enslaved or indentured in the hands of the church. Oh, good. In 1771. Yep. And, um, and it changed a few more times after that. And especially in 1770, boy, I've just done a lot of research for this book, y'all. So I love <laughs> so it. I thank you. Keep going on. Forgive me. Just stop me if I'm getting, you know, no, going on. no, it's good. I'll stop you at 1235. <laughs> Oh, okay. It's, okay. it's okay. I love it. Go, go. <laughs> so, so basically, in, in 1670, look, you asked for the history, so here it goes. Right? I know. So, I did. I asked. It's so good. <laughs> and I'm excited about your book. I mean, this is great. Thank you. I'm excited, too. Thank you. So 1670, um, there, there's like an innovation in technology. And the, the African 
um, African Trading Company, which is actually the, the British, in, I mean, slave, slave trade, they get some innovation on their boats, and now they have the ability to bring Africans directly from Africa to the United States. Up to that point, from 16, 1619 to 1669, they had brought Africans to the U.S. explicitly through the Caribbean because the Caribbean was closer oh, to wow. Africa, okay. Brazil, and South America. Yeah. So, um, so now at 1660, now they have the, the ability to cart hundreds um, to force hundreds of, in, of Africans into directly into America from Africa. And that's when there's an explosion of, the, of black presence in Maryland. And I know Maryland because that's where I researched in order to do my family history. And what happened was you start, you start seeing this clamping down on blackness and whiteness, this incredible anti-blackness um, and, and this, and, further and further defining of slave, what it means to be a slave and laws around that. And it just becomes really, really heinous by the mid 1700s. And really the whole indentured, the the system of indenture starts to fall by the wayside by the mid 1700s. And now it's only slavery. So by the time you get the Americas, you know, the the United States of America um, in in 1776, it's really, we are a slave nation. Yeah. Um, and they had a choice at that time, whether or not they were going to keep slavery or not. And they decided to keep it. And they decided, and then it exploded in the 18th, 19th century. It just exploded with the invention of the cotton gin um, and also the, the close then of the Atlantic slave trade. You then had the explosion of, um, of people of African descent being breeded. Yes, bred on American soil for the free labor that they represent. And so they were bred throughout Virginia, South Carolina, North Carolina, um, really throughout the South, but especially Virginia. Virginia became the number one place where breeding farms existed. They called them breeding farms, where they existed to breed people of African descent to be Mm. sold into the deep South to pick that cotton. Wow. So friends, these are our roots. That was not in my history book. I have a question, teacher. What about the breeding farms? Like I'm gonna send my kid to school with that when they uh, start history. I'm gonna say, hey, Stella, ask about the breeding farms. Yes, please do. Yes, seriously. Please do. I mean, yeah. Yeah, so so there's this, so there begins to be a lot of insurrections because you can imagine how heinous things are, right? Um, and for the people of African descent who are living in an enslaved state, um, it is horrific. I mean, you know, not only are children separated from their mothers, but they're literally not being raised by their mothers. They're being raised in pens by women whose job it is to raise the kids in, in like feeding pens, kind of like they're, it's really horrific. In fact, if you go to Monticello, Monticello, you know, the place where Thomas Jefferson, his, his, his place that everybody's yeah, so proud of. Right. Um, if you get a good docent, I, I got a really good docent there who really knew her history. She did her research. Um, then you'll find that they had a cabin that was out. This was not, this was not the Hemings. <laughs> this was not the Hemings experience. 
but they had they only had like three or four cabins for all of their enslaved people and they had they had about 300 slaves on their property at any one time and the rest of the people slept in the fields and then um, they had one whole cabin that was actually set aside just for the children so the children lived in one little one little cabin hundreds so you see you see like so no talk idea about, so let's talk trauma. Let's talk trauma. Yeah, and let's talk generational trauma. Let's talk about that. Because this was like, me. this was not that long ago. No. no that's like if my, you really think about, this was your great-great-grandparents. My great-great-great-grandmother raised my grandmother. You hear me? Yeah, my your grandmother. Knew the last enslaved adult in our family. Mm. That just sent something really, yeah. Yeah. So, but I want to talk not only generational trauma, but I really want to talk about implicit bias and how it is passed down in white yeah. people. Please. Right? Because I think that's actually more important for your audience. So obviously yes. generational trauma exists, and we talk about that in the African, you know, in the community of African descent in America. That's our conversation. Um, we, we do, and we do. In fact, look, I'm in therapy right now. <laughs> I hope so. By the way, for any people of African descent out there who, and actually everybody who's been out there on the lines. And I want to say thank you to the white women, especially, but white men as well, who have gone out on the front lines over the last week and have made, have, have made yourself seen. You need to be seen right yes. now. That's the word from Bishop Flunder. Um, you get Flunder. Um, last night on our interfaith town hall on, on policing and law enforcement, she said, it's time to be seen. Um, yes. And so thank you for that. Um, but our people of African descent have been um, traumatized in major ways um, for centuries. And so I was just sharing with my, my new therapist, my story, my family. She, she asked a really good question. She said, tell me about your family. You know, and I was like, oh, that's interesting. So when I talk about my family, I go back to 1682. She was like, okay, that's we can impressive. go back. <laughs> She's like, just kidding. I didn't want that far back, but yeah, no, no. She was like, no, go she probably all the way loved back. it. Yeah. So, and, I, and then, you know, when I finished going all the way up through my mom's generation, my grandmother, I mean, she said, it's obvious that what you are experiencing is generational trauma and um, the experiences of generational um, uh, oppression and and abuse um, that that stems from that oppression. So we're going to work from there, and it's been really great. So, but so going from there, implicit bias. Now imagine being a person of European descent that you are, most of you. Um, imagine seeing people of African descent in chains, on um, work farms. Um, being whipped with overseers over them for three centuries, basically, for 256 years. That was how you, literally, that's what you saw when you saw us. That's, well, let me just say that that's exactly, that was exactly the conditions of prisons in Europe. Prisons in Europe were work farms with overseers, whips and chains but our only offense was to be born of african descent there was no offense there was no illegality we right. did nothing to deserve 
prison. But that's what happened. We were placed on prisons because of our lineage, because of the laws that were passed in 1660 and 1662 and were copied by the other colonies and then, then adopted by the United States of America when, when they all joined together. And it became law. So, so now but imagine that. Imagine the impact of soaking in that image of us for 256 years. And then when we are set, when we free ourselves through fighting in the Civil War and, and others, uh, and then lobbying their president, and we, we are um, set free, um, we have nine years of absolute freedom. We, um, and in an amazing way, families find each other who were sold away from each other. There are um, major initiatives within the African-American community to find each other. There's a really great book called Have You Seen My Mother or something like that um, that you can find on Amazon that, that documents a lot of these stories. Um, and we, we elect, we vote, we elect more than a thousand elected officials across the United States are African, of African descent. Um, and then seven, seven to nine years after the Civil War. But then white men in particular get threatened by this um, and the efficiency actually of all of these governments that start to happen. Because remember, people of African descent are the ones who ran everything. They ran the plantations. They ran right. the industry. They, we know how to do this stuff. This ain't nothing new for us. And we right. invented a lot of it in Africa. Hello. And we can do and it better. The very first university in the world was in Africa. The very first library in the world was in Africa. You know, we knew how to do this. So when we led, it, stuff was good. But white folks, white men got threatened by it. And that's where the KKK and Jim Crow and all of that rose up. And it all happened after a compromise to let to make the South play well with the North and the new Union. They decided, the North decided to pull their troops Union out of out of the South, and that's when Jim Crow erupted. So then you get ninety years of Jim Crow, um, and with those ninety years of Jim Crow, you get the blocking of of um, law. You get people being strung up. You get people being hanged. You get people being lynched. Rather, that's really the word. Now you see ninety years of lynchings. You see ninety years of extrajudicial executions. Again, an image of criminality, an image that comes from Europe, because in Europe they hanged criminals. That's how they did it, right? So what do you then begin to believe about people of African descent? You begin to see them as criminals, as inherently criminal, because that's the message that your mind, our minds, I should say our, because this is something we've all been infected with um, over the last 300 now, 400 years. And now, after, you know, Jim Crow, here comes mass incarceration, another way to incarcerate, imprison Black people, control That's and That's like, what, 80s, 85? We're That's, talking Re actually, Reagan, the war on drugs, that... Yes, but the war on drugs started with Nixon. So he's yeah, the one oh, who yeah, yeah. declared right. the war on drugs, but, um, but and I know that you probably need to go pretty soon, so I know no, if you no, want no, to we have. No, no, no. We have, we have as much time. It'll go up oh. on Instagram at one, but we can keep going. So whenever, whenever you have to go, we go. Oh, I don't okay, have anything okay. to do. Yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> so, so thank you so much, Thistle Pixie. Appreciate that. Um, so I, I, um, 
one of the things that I, I think we have to really wrestle with and reckon with is the reality that there are implicit biases that people of European descent have, and, and quite honestly, according to the science, 75% of all people who have ever taken the Harvard Association, implicit association test, um, have toward whiteness and against blackness. And this, these, this bias permeates every single area of life. Um, if you go on Kirwan Institute's webpage, Kirwan Institute, K-I-R-W-A-N Institute, their webpage, um, they will have um, great studies. They do a study every year on the impact of, on implicit bias and its impact in public policy and in public, just the public life. So what you'll find is that implicit bias, which everybody has, it's not something that we don't have. It's, it's just, it's a way of shortening our processes, our thinking processes, so that we don't have to sit here and say, um, that is, I mean, that's a chair because it has four legs, a back and a, and a seat. Right. Instead, we look at it and we go chair, right? So it's a way of shortening our, our thinking processes. So instead of saying, this is a person of African descent who has two master's degrees and is, um, or is a human being with, uh, with a mom and a grandmother and a nephew, actually several nephews and lots of nieces. And, you know, and no, you look at me and you say black and you say dangerous. Right. That's what implicit bias does. So there is an implicit understanding of blackness in America that black people are to be feared and they are dangerous. And that, yeah. that comes from that history of soaking in images of us as criminals I mean, being treated as criminals, um, even though we weren't. And so how do, you, how do you lessen your bias? There are lots of ways to do this. Um, if you read, first of all, get my book. My book is The Very Good Gospel. Um, and The Very Good Gospel, you don't have to be Christian to read that book. It was written um, trying to understand how, um, how, how we got here and what to do about it. And gospel only means good news. That's what it means. So what's the good news? And my experience of my faith is that I come out of an evangelical experience. And my experience was I was told that the good news is basically that Jesus died for our sins. We get to go to heaven if we believe that. What, we, what that understanding of the gospel does is it extricates Jesus from his context and from who he actually was. Jesus was brown. He was politically black. He was colonized. He died at the hands of white empire, empire that was explicitly white supremacist. That's the context. Yeah. And his yeah. entire people, going back to Abram, were brown, indigenous people um, who had relationship to the land, in relationship to God, in relationship to each other. And, um, and they were always, always under threat or actually being colonized always even david and solomon who wrote books in the bible who were kings they were kings of a dinky kingdom that kept getting sacked right right you know they were never ever ever an empire and the reason i say that is because the project of the united states of america um, comes out of the project of imperialism in europe and colonization it's part of that project we are an extension of that project 
And when the white um, Europeans threw off British colonization, they then set about the, the business of colonizing the people of color on this land. And so I actually think the deepest thing that needs to happen is a decolonization of our nation and our minds. Mm. Yes, of our minds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And our hearts. And our hearts. And our- I'm going to stop and let you ask questions now. <laughs> oh, I don't even know. So um, if anyone has any questions, please, if you're on Zoom, you can come on video. Um, please um, ask any questions. I I think it, first of all, and also if you haven't watched uh, Lisa with Jen Hatmaker, go to Jen Hatmaker or go to your Facebook. Is it on, I think it's on Jen. Yeah, it's on both of ours. But it's, it's on, on my go to, go to Lisa's. <laughs> I, I, saw her, I saw you through Jen, but go to Lisa's Facebook page, like her page and watch the video, the interview. It was very good. It talks a lot about the, the white fragility and, and how white women have used this fragility to our advantage. And it's very powerful. I don't want to repeat that here. I want to give additional information. So go watch that. But one of the things that I think is, is so powerful, I'm listening, I'm going to get your book, but I'm starting my education with me and white supremacy. And that the idea in, in the book about white supremacy being you know, because white people are like, well, I'm not, I'm not a racist. I'm not a white supremacist. And and the thing that people aren't understanding is that is, it's not that. It's the system, which you just so aptly described, like the history of the system where we are not, as white people, the system is functioning. It's doing exactly what it was intended to do 400 years ago, which yeah. is to quiet these voices and to silence the stories and the truth like we're all sitting here going are you kidding me there were breeding farms we're not supposed to know about that and so where we as white people have to stand up is go i did not know that but now that i do i'm really mad and i am going to open my eyes and i'm going to do the work behind this and i that's what i'm doing and i'm i I'm ashamed. I spent time in shame <laughs> and as I should. No, 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 but, no, no, no. Okay. No, we're we're talking about that. Richie, it's not about shame. This is not about shame. Don't be shameful. You well, are yeah. a victim of the system that we have, the system withheld information from you. Don't be ashamed. Be fucking mad. Yeah, be enraged. I am. I am. Be enraged because you were duped. You were duped in order to keep you silent so the system could actually remain as it is. Don't be ashamed. You don't have anything to be ashamed of. Be enraged. I am. I'm real mad. And you know what I'm, I'm even madder about? And this is, this is meant to be a joke. So, But the fact that I quit being a lawyer like four years ago, I, and now I'm like, oh, damn, I'm going to have to dust off that law degree now or not. <laughs> I'm, because I, I, I'm sitting here going... Um, I have skills and damn it, I'm going to have to go put those legal skills to work, but that's what I'm, I'm feeling called to do. So I'm, I'm educating myself, but yes, I am mad. And, and thank you for, you know, saying like, don't be shameful, be mad. Cause I think that's a better bridge. Um, because I honest, you know, Dr. Maya Angelou said, when you know better, you do better. But I, my question is, why didn't I know better? Like that's where the bridge. <sighs> well, let me just say Meredith, you didn't know better because the information was hidden from you. I mean, do you realize that the majority of textbooks in the United States come from one state? They come from Texas. Right? 
of all the places. Majority of textbooks. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, somebody tried calling me. <laughs> I know, that's the worst. Uh, don't so call me. Can you turn it on Instagram? <laughs> I know, right? Get on Instagram. They're great. So the majority of textbooks come from Texas. Now, I did a... No, okay, y'all. I had my eyes open. I do pilgrimages all the time, and it's part of it's part of my work. It's part of how I know all this stuff is because I... I've taken the time to go stand on the land where stuff happened and talk to the people it happened to, right? Or to their descendants or to people who are experts in it from the community, right? So so one of the pilgrimages that I did last year was a pilgrimage through the story of immigration and exploitation, the history of that on, on U.S. soil. And it starts with slavery, right? So it starts with the, the importation of, of labor in order to uphold white flourishing that's bottom line mm. yeah. so so that's what enslavement was all about the slave trade was all about upholding white flourishing and so um and what they did was they exploited our labor um to do that just like they exploited the land so we went from the um the whitney plantation which is down in new orleans um to uh sugarland um, which is a little town, actually not a little town, it's a little city in, right outside of Houston, Texas. Um, and that was a, one of the locations of one of those work farms that I talked to you about, about um, this, uh, uh, in the era of peonage and Jim Crow and um, uh, convict leasing. And the thing about, about those work farms that I'll just say, because it does connect to the that I'm going to talk about later, is that... After enslavement, when they set up those work farms, they set them up in a way, they set them up by lowering the bar of criminality and focusing policing on people of African descent to fill the same plantations that were just set free with new free labor because the 13th Amendment left that loophole that Slavery is outlawed except in the case of imprisonment. I, when I saw that, I, ju- I swear that when my reading of the 13th Amendment, and it's probably not true, but I'm like, I don't feel like that was in my textbook. I feel like it didn't no. say that. I feel no. like they left out except for crime. I really That's do. Right. But maybe it's yes. just my bias. And yeah. no, 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 let me say, it's not, it's not except for crime. I want to get this straight. It's not except for crime. It's except for imprisonment. Imprisonment. Yeah, in prison. And the Sorry. reason why that's important is because most of these people didn't commit any crimes. Right. They, they lowered the bar so low that they made it a criminal act to sit on a park bench for too long. Like literally, it was called vagrancy. They called that vagrancy. And, they and so if a black man sat on a park or a boy or old man sat on a park bench for too long, he would be snatched from that park bench, no trial, no trial at all, and put into a work farm. That's where the, you know, you see those pictures of the black men on a chain gang. You hear this, like, oh, you know, and they're like, yes, that's what that was. For sitting on a park bench. They were, they or or they looked at a white man in the eye. Right. Or, or they, yes. And, and remind they, us how soon ago this was. This was 20th century. This was this was actually through 1954 until passage and 1954 until 
um, the uh, Brown versus the Board of Education. And really, it was through 1964 until passage of the Civil Rights Act. That's what ended that. This was yesterday, you guys. Yeah, literally. 19, my, it was my, mom, my mom's lifetime. And, yeah. you know, I was born five years later, you know. So for so, everyone asking, um, I am going to repost this. Yes, it will also go up on YouTube and my podcast the same 24 hours. So yes, that's why we're doing all these recordings because I want to make sure we didn't miss any of it. So yes, it will be available on all the places. <laughs> I, I, see, I see Mila Jamila Mila. <laughs> Hello. Um, I see you asking about our decolonizing the Bible um, webinar series that is still up. It'll be up forever and, and, and a day. And um, you can still access it. So please go to freedomroad.us, freedomroad.us, um, although we say us because it's more than the U.S., um, and uh, go to the Institute. So just click on the Institute link, and you'll see that and a bunch of other offerings as well. And that's on demand now. It's not live, but you can see the recordings, you know, and they're really, really good. Like, yeah, really so make good. sure you're all following Lisa and Freedom Road. Like, go follow, go support, buy her book. Authors make no money off of books. Go buy her book and then buy 10 copies of her book and donate yes. them to your libraries and schools. As a fellow author, we get like a dollar a book. Do you know that? Like, don't act like you're doing me a favor buying the book. Buy 10 copies. <laughs> Please give Thank me $10. You. That is so good. That is such a <laughs> Have your whole community read it. Like, if you have a church, get your church to read the book. Buy the book, um, though. Don't yeah. borrow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that is, that is my biggest pet peeve when people are like, I borrowed your book. I'm like, thanks a lot. Doesn't do me any good. Appreciate it. Buy that book. I'm a real, I'm a, I'm a book fiend. I, I, I oh, consume yeah. books like, like, you know, I have a like book cooking. problem. <laughs> I have a book problem. My husband goes, are you serious right now? Cause I've been ordering from our local bookstore. They have a mystery bundle and they'll, you just, give them a hundred dollars and they surprise you. And so I get it and, and they cure. So the owner knows me. And so he writes me a note about why he chose each book. And I mean, and my husband oh. says seriously. And, and I'm like, yes, once a month. <laughs> cool. I like it's that. real cool. That's silver unicorn books. I'll drop that. So you can order Lisa's book from them too. Oh, okay. Nice. Okay. So um, wait, let me go back and finish one yeah. thing. Can I do that? Yeah. yeah. Please finish the thought about that pilgrimage, right? So this was this literally blew my mind, you guys. This is how current all of this is. So the reason I went into peonage is because it didn't stop there. Peonage was outlawed around 1920, right? But right after that, when peonage was outlawed, then you first it was outlawed, but it still happened, right? But so that's one thing. But mm -hmm. the way that they they transitioned it was they made it something that happened to immigrants. So around the 1930s, 40s, especially 50s, even into the 60s, you had the Bracero program, um, which was America actually making a deal with Mexico to, and to bring um, labor over into the United States for near dirt cheap. And those people would be, quote, paid um, by the American government to come and work, raise right? way to, to help them get work. But it was exploitative because the people didn't have organizing rights. They couldn't, they couldn't negotiate with their um, employers for better wages and, or better conditions because the contract was not between people and employers. It was between governments. So there was no ability to, to um, negotiate. So what happened with the Bracero program, they brought over these people and basically threw them back onto the same plantations that enslaved people just ran from in the Great Migration. Um, and got freed from, they put them, they put them in the same slave cabins. 
And I'm um, down in South Texas. They put them in. Um, they put them in, in train cars. Like they had families sleeping in open train cars at night in the desert. Do you know how hot that was, or how cold that would get? Like that's that's and mosquitoes and the the. I mean, just and no water. And no ability to go to the bathroom while you're out there in the middle of the field. That's what we did in the mid-20th century, mid-20th century. And then that Bracero program pretty much ended and people became migrant workers, which is this, what we have today. So um, when we look at the pattern, what I learned on that pilgrimage is that our entire agricultural system exists on the backs of free or cheap labor. We need in our current system to exploit black and brown people in order to eat our carrots, our oats, our potatoes, wow. our spinach, our food, our tomatoes, our system, the whole South, exists and has existed from the beginning of it until right now on exploitation. And do you know what? The, one of the first things that Trump, President Trump did when he got into office, he created a militarized zone. He extended the, the, um, the border 100 miles. 100 miles from the border, that, that takes up whole states, like whole states in the South right. are now militarized. So if you have immigrants that come into the United States um, from the South, from the Southern border, they can't very, it's very hard for them to get past that 100 mile checkpoint. They have checkpoints all over the place to try to get, and it's that, it's what, so what area is that? That's the agrarian South. Right. So a lot, a lot of people who are trying, try to come to America for better, for a better life, they get trapped in the South, which does take in those undocumented immigrants sure. into fields to work those fields. But we set up a militarized state in the in the South to keep them there, to trap them there. This is happening now, you guys. Right. Hello. And you'll wonder what right now, right now. So we have five more minutes on Instagram. So this will go off. We can keep talking, but, um, how important, okay. So this is continued. We've been, a lot of us have been kept in the dark because of our privilege, because the system works for us. What's, why would we need to know anything else? I mean, my life's fine over here and where I live. Um, how important is it for us to dismantle this system? Like um, it, yesterday I talked to Latrice Kabuya and she said, the system is not broken. The system is functioning exactly how it's meant to be, that we have to get a new system. This is not about fixing the system. This is about yeah. creating a new system. That's right. What do we do? Like, where where so, do, and besides we're listening to you, but this is, this is, we got an election in November. Um, yes. Yes. Seriously, let me, let me, listen. Yeah. Let me dive in because there's there's a little bit and we don't have a lot of time, right? So, yeah. so first of all, I want to direct you to my Facebook page, not my Facebook, but Freedom Roads Facebook page. Just last night, we did, or yesterday afternoon, we did an interfaith town hall on law enforcement and policing. And the whole point of it 
was to begin to dream, to begin to dream of another way of being together in the world. And for us, particularly that the subject was law enforcement and policing. Why is that? I hope you understood in all the history I gave you, kind of the most emphatic, um, the, the tip of the spear, the place where this system is enforced is law enforcement. The, the, the people responsible for filling the, the work farms, the prisons now, um, the people who are responsible for filling the, the deportation centers, which also do free labor and non and low cost labor, and also are filling beds and, um, and contracts and, and filling the pockets of, of businesses that have um, for-profit prisons um, and deportation centers. This is, this is how America works on the underside, right? So what we asked is we asked, how can we do this differently? How can we live differently in this world? So I want to advise you. Oh, somebody already put um, uh, a Zoom link there. I'm not sure what that is. Yeah, but that's that's me. That's that's if you oh. want to pop off. That's me. <laughs> if you want to pop <laughs> off here and join Zoom. So um, also, if you click on the link in my bio, you can get to it that way. Okay. Yeah. So so make sure you go over to my Facebook page, like the page, like Lisa Sharon Harper dot page on Facebook and also like freedomroad.us. You'll find that um, town hall on freedomroad.us, right? So uh, on Facebook, um, do that. Also follow here on Instagram and follow um, uh, Lisa S. Harper on Twitter as well. That, you know, but we'll just, we'll follow, we'll keep the conversation going there. But just know this, that how do we do this? We give ourselves um, permission to dream again. Oh, and yeah. for people of European descent, you have to understand the seed determines the fruit. You will absolutely never get an apple from an orange seed. You will never get a watermelon from a cantaloupe seed. It's just not going to happen. We planted the seed of human hierarchy in 1619. We planted the seed of the police with the slave patrols that, that patrolled back in the 1840s and 50s. When the, in the midst of all those attempted insurrections and, and, and escapes, you're not going to get anything different than a slave patrol from the United States of American police right now, because that's the seed. It's a yeah. slave patrol. So we need to plant new seed. That's, that's it. We need to that's figure good. out what is that new seed. And there are people talking about that. And I want to advise that you follow black voices, that you yes. follow, listen because this conversation has been happening for a long time. We, we know were listening. Need. Yeah. Yeah. It's yes. all there. You guys, you know what we need to do. And now we need to listen. You've yes. done the work. I mean, we just have to absorb the work and follow it. And so, okay, I'm going to end Instagram, pop over to live, go to my bio. If you can't find the link, it's in there. Um, and fo go follow Lisa and thank you all for joining here. Okay. Okay. Bye-bye. All right. We are on zoom now. All right. Can you hear me? Okay. Yes. Can you hear me? I can't hear you. Ah! Okay. <laughs> hold on one second. Up. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. You can't hear me. How about now? Okay. How about now? How about now? <gasps> I can. We did it. I can hear you. Look at all oh we've God. learned today. I have learned, and you have learned, and we are just killing it. <laughs> <laughs> it's been really, really great. We, we yeah. did a lot of technology today. I think we did great. <laughs> we did. I think that we need to start having like tech people run these things. So you know, although it's it's kind of fun to watch people who are like so powerful in the in the you know internet sphere.
like fumble, (laughs) including myself. (laughs) Well, and that's the thing. It's like, you know, people email me, they're like, well, can you let Meredith know? And I'm like, you're talking to her. (laughs) She's right here. I don't, my assistant has not been hired. That's right. That's right. Oh my gosh. Um, okay, where were we? Or if not, um, I, I'm glad to pose another question. And what time do you need to go? I want to be respectful of your time. Oh, that, that's good. I actually need to go in about 10 minutes. Let's okay, about 10 okay. Minutes. so let's let's wrap it up. Um, we were we're, we were talking about the seed. We got to plant a new seed. And then I think yeah. we had to pop off. So Yeah, so let's talk new seed. New seeds. So one of the things that, um, that I think we need to ask is what kind of What is at the heart of the problem? I think at the heart of the problem, um, well, there's a couple of ways you can cut this, right? Theologically, I don't know, is your your audience a faith-based audience, by the way? No, I mean, there's a lot of them because I'm from the South, but I would would say (laughs) not faith-based. I use too many bad words to be, call myself completely (laughs) faith-based. (laughs) <laughs> and I'm faith-based, and I just said the F word yeah. on your IG. I can't even believe I did but that. it was fucking important. <laughs> That's fabulous. That's fabulous. Yes. So, I mean, look, and also, if it warrants it, if there's no better way to put it, then then say it, right? So, yes. So, so here's the thing is that when when I look at this, I am a Christian, right? And I And I am actually, everything for me, is shaped by my understanding of the world in a theological way. And then also in sociological, mental, all the, all the rest. But when I, the thing that has struck me the most as somebody who is a follower of Jesus and, and scripture is that on a theological level, we learn on the very first page of the whole Bible that every single person in the whole world was created in the image of God, that right. we have inherent dignity. Every last person on earth has inherent dignity. And what that means in the scripture is that these people, every single person is called by God to exercise dominion in the world, to exercise agency, to exercise stewardship of the world. And what that requires is it requires the ability to do that, access to the ability to make decisions that impact the world. And you can see through that history that we laid out that there have, there's been a, a, a claiming of the, uh, the right to dominion mm. by people of European descent, right? So they claimed that. That's the whole, that is the colonization project. The colonizing project is the, the fundamental belief is that we are the ones who God has ordained to rule the world. And we are the civilized ones. And we're doing everybody else a favor by civilizing them to make them like right. us. That's, that's the colonial project. That's what it is. And so we have fashioned the world according to human hierarchies that are nowhere to be found in God's mind, in, in, the, in, the, in the divine mind, um, in the mind that, that created every single human being. And so what it looks like is to, in the, in the, you know, in the, in the classic Christian traditional sense, to repent. <laughs> mm, <laughs> to yes. repent, repent, to turn, to turn and go 180 degrees in the other direction. That's what that Recognize means. Recognize your sin, preach. <laughs> yes, 
It yes. is sin. That's what it is. It's, that's all it really is. is it's folks have been sinning. But the thing is, if you have a lot of power and you sin, then that means you have the ability to oppress, not yeah. just hurt somebody, but to oppress. And that's what happened is when we fashioned these systems in ways that created and enforced human hierarchy, we oppressed whole people groups in order to protect the flourishing, it was thought, of, of themselves. Sorry. The flourishing. So, Gosh, even that word is like, oh. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so what does it look like? It looks like, you know, moving from, a, and part of the, the modus operandi of that oppression is to make everything, take everything and extricate it from its context and its story. And instead, make everybody um, operate in legal relationships versus human relationships, right? So, sorry, I got it. I don't know. I got something in my throat. Oh, it's okay. I'm sitting next to the window, so pollen. <laughs> so, <clears throat> excuse me. So, so what would it look like then for us to transition, to transform our, our law enforcement policing system? into a public safety system, you know? So what does it look like for us to ask the question, how do we keep people safe versus how do we enforce the law? Right. How do we keep people safe? Well, if you, to keep people safe, you actually have to deal with poverty. Right. It's a much <laughs> bigger question than mm-hmm. just brute forcing your way. Yeah, I mean, yes. You have, yeah. to, you have to ask different questions. Yes, yes, exactly. And not how to keep white people safe. Like, I think that's, you know, people are like, oh, yeah, well, we're, we're doing that. We're trying, we're keeping people. No, you're keeping oh, yeah. white people safe. You're keeping, it's not how do we keep all humans safe? How do we keep everyone's? How do we have a safer world and country? Yes, and, and yes. Yeah. Yes. And, and let me just say that one of the things we know, and I said this yesterday on um, Pantsuit Politics um, podcast, I'll repeat it here, is that poverty does not follow, um, <clears throat> sorry, violence does not follow poverty. <clears throat> violence follows inequity. Right. So, right. Yeah. Exactly. Because why and, and, and the follow-up question to that is can we stop for one second and ask why does violence follow inequity? Think about it wow. for a second. What what happens to bring about violence? And you can see it in the protests, right? I mean, let's like really think about that because everyone's like, oh my gosh, there's these protests, and then they go and look what happened. Like, are you are you kidding me? Because I see mm-hmm. it now. There was another really good book written by Brian McLaren years ago called Everything Must Change. I want to recommend that one to you guys as well. That book is profound. Everything must change. Brian McLaren? Mm. Yes, Brian McLaren. He's an incredible thinker and a very good friend now. And um, but I read that book and my mind just went where he's that kind of a thinker. And what he's what he says in that book, he actually lays out exactly why. Exactly why. Because when you have great inequity, then that means you have deep poverty living right next door to um, insane opulence. Mm. And uh, the most inequitable city on earth is a really great example of this. It's, it's actually Cape Town, South Africa. Right. The most inequitable city on earth is Cape Town, South Africa. And you can see it, right? Like you drive, if you drive out 
by near the airport and keep going. Sorry, that's where you get to the, the colored township and then further out is the black townships. And when you when you see those townships, you see like absolute debt. There is nothing. They have, they literally were given kits, a tin kit to nail their homes together. You have literally people living in a tin home, tin, like, and on top of each other with no yeah. roads and no running water and no electricity. They have a, a, a jerry-rigged net of electrical wires that hangs over um, all of the black townships, um, but it's not provided by the state. <clears throat> and in the colored townships, the quote colored townships, they have no trees, no greenery, but then you go out to the white places, the places that the white folks snatched from yeah. the people of African descent who were actually from of South African descent, who were from there. Um, the, the, the nations that um, where Mandela were from, literally. Um, and those, in those places, the white folks snatched that land and it's the best land. Yeah, they the do views that all over are the world. amazing. The views are amazing. Because Cape Town is beautiful. I, I went there oh in 1997. God. I mean, I think it's the most, it's the most beautiful place I've ever been. But yeah, yes. the white people took all those views. <laughs> they they took did. It. That's right. Right. So you, there's this really um, beautiful, beautiful section that you go up through. It's like, it's not mountainous, but it's like hilly. And I guess it just goes up the side of a mountain. And like the people who live there have gold gilded garage stores gold actual that's gold that's because they're made of gold right <laughs> isn't that what Plato said <laughs> yeah right yeah 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 right yeah. exactly Plato Plato was Plato was oh, all about Plato, yeah those yeah. are the people so so what you have there is you have great violence because right. of this amazing inequity. So every single person who is middle class and above, but most people, you're either really well off or you're not basically in South, in, in South Africa. Um, anybody who has their own home and, you know, isn't, isn't in one of those plan, um, plantations, uh, um, rather uh, um, provinces, the townships, they all have razor wire around yeah. each individual home. Right. So, we only yeah. see that for prisons here in the U.S. Yeah, right. We right. don't like they. Who's in prison there? They are imprisoning themselves, <laughs> right? right? But the only reason they have that level of violence is because they have that level of inequity, right? And the reason right. for the the violence is because you have the, the destitute looking at. They can see the injustice. They can see what should be theirs in the hands of those who snatched it. So violence stems from that. Um, so if you have if you have a society, let's say we're going to dream, what would it look like then for us to address violence by lowering inequity? By shrinking it, by shrinking that gap, by actually increasing the middle class. What would it look like for us to actually ensure that every single person has access to health care? Because health care is the number one reason why people go in America, why they go into, into poverty, why they drop right. into poverty, because they have some life crisis event that throws them into poverty um, in health, and they get that big health bill. Um, what would it look like for us to have schools that actually do have good books and good teachers, trained teachers, not emergency credentialed teachers 24-7 year-round, which is what you get in impoverished neighborhoods. What would it like for us to have schools that have books at all? Because in those impoverished neighborhoods, they literally don't have books. 
like let alone actual, a laptop for yes. every kid like we have I mean, that's yes, done let's, in every white community. Let's let's go there. Yes, let's update this. It's not just about books. It's about laptops. And it's about internet computer that is available at home that is funded. Uh, that it's, it's so deep. It's like mm-hmm. you can't just necessarily give a laptop because you have to. You have to be able to fun- have internet. Like this yes. goes so deep. So many yes. levels deep. Uh, yeah, and you yeah. know, I tell you what, it's not even just. It's not just white black, right? Because what right. it really is, because when you ask the question, who really benefited from the system, right? Who really were the benefactors of the system? It was the landowners in the South, in the plantation South. It was um, after the Civil War, it was those who, who you know, transitioned from being landowners to being the big moguls, the, the business owners, right? So, and the people who actually then built the banks and that the rich are the ones who actually benefited. And they duped all the other white people by creating this hard, um, hard white patriarchy that basically said, if you're, <coughs> excuse me, oh my God. <coughs> Holland, man. Woo. Oh, I know it, it jumps right in your throat. Wow, too. It like, does. Oh, I know. I'm, I'm near you. And you've got to go in a minute, by the way. I do. I'm, I do. I'm I keeping do. track of your time. <laughs> Thank you for doing that. Cause I won't. So <laughs> anyway, let me just say that, um, it, it takes us dreaming of another way to be together in the world. It takes us transitioning from being legally, like legally bound, not just legally bound, but thinking of the way we interact in the world according to what is legal or not. Right. Rather asking the question of how can our laws uphold and policies uphold the flourishing of all images of God within our jurisdiction and beyond. Right. Um, not whether it's legal us- or not, but are our laws just, are our laws promoting yes. equality? Are, that is yes. the question. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Which is why I'm going to have to use my law degree, Lisa. I don't want Yes, it is. <laughs> it is. And you're going to need to have a conversation with Brian Stevenson. Right? I was going to ask you if you would, con- if you would connect. Yeah. Connect to anyone that you would love to, you know, talk, have come talk. Because this is what I'm here. This is my only use right now. Is I have this. Come, come. Yeah. Well, yes. I mean, I, I just, I really do. I recommend calling them. Just call them up. Um, okay. Call up EJI Equal Justice Initiative and um, ask to talk oh, with. Oh, EJI as in yeah. the movie. Yes, as in just yes, mercy. As in just mercy. I exactly. Can call him. He would you can be call like. Them. You can call them. Like, I don't know if you get him, but you can call them. <laughs> but I mean, it's hard like, to get man, him now. <laughs> see, this is what I'm scared of, Lisa. But, you know, this is also why I told my husband. I said, I do this because when I show up and I tell people I'm showing up, I show up. And I yeah. know that I'm not going to sit here in two weeks and be like, well, that was good. I did the good person white thing. No. I hope not. Yes. And so for exactly. me to call. Yeah. And then who knows? <laughs> who knows what will happen from there? <laughs> He is. I He's still there in Montgomery. I can't go to Alabama. I, I made it back. I made it to New England. I got out of Georgia. Don't send me back. Oh my out. gosh! That is so, wow. Okay, so I thought I, I listened. I heard a yeah, southern twang. Uh, born here. and bred in very segregated <laughs> Savannah, and moved, spent my adult yes. life in Atlanta. Wow! Huh. Wow! Yeah. Well, sister, you know what we're talking about because your heritage goes right back to that place. Right, goes yep. right back, and so I want to say that. Um, we are not defined by our past. We are defined by how we respond to our past and move forward. And 
for all of the people of European descent who are on this call, I think your first, your very first thing that you need to do is you need to renounce this status of whiteness. Now, it doesn't mean that you blind yourself to the, the, the I don't even like to say the word privilege because that, that actually dumbs down the oppression. You need to understand the reality that you have been lifted up and your flourishing has been protected because you have the status of whiteness just by birth, right? Right. Um, and that is because in America, they took the, the system of the nobles and the serfs from Europe and they transplanted it here and the serfs become people of, of uh, people of color and the nobles become anybody who is named white. And that's why all the way through the 19th century into halfway through the 20th century, you had immigrants coming to America from all over the world, fighting their way all the way up to the Supreme Court to try to be listed as white because white meant human in America. Right. So I think that the very first thing that you need to do as people of European descent in America is to begin to use the words people of European descent, not white. Because mm. if you are claiming whiteness, that means you are claiming human hierarchy. <clears throat> wow. Don't claim that. Don't claim that. Instead, claim who you actually are. So do your DNA. There is no excuse anymore. Find out who your actual people are and find out your family's history. That's what I did. I went back. I was able to, and look, you really don't have any excuse because as white people, you are very well documented. You are very well <laughs> documented, generally I'm speaking. Like, I, don't, I don't want to know. No, and that's the problem. That's yep. the problem. That's the problem. You cannot, look, you were duped because they, they hid this from you. Don't continue to dupe yourself. Don't, don't continue to hide information from yourself. Yeah. We all depend on you knowing. So get to knowing. Get to knowing who you actually are. What is your family's actual story? How they actually get here? Yeah. If they were from Georgia, if they were brought in Georgia, I would be willing to bet hard cash that they were either, if they came in the, in the 19th century, or the 18th century, I'd be willing to bet hard cash that they either came as a convict from, from um, England because Georgia was a convict state. It was right. a prison state set up by England. And then you have to understand that once they were set free, those, those people became the landowners. They then did what was done to them, to the people of African descent. Right. Right. So you got to understand your story. You got to know your story so that you can then begin to repent in this generation so that you right. can be part of the repair of what race broke in the world now. Okay. So I see a question and then I'm going to go, Lisa, question for you. If we should say people of European descent for white people do, Oh, hold on. Wait, lots of questions are flowing right now. Hold on one second. Okay. One more question for Lisa and then she's got to go. I got to send her off. <laughs> yeah. Okay, um, for white people, do we also need to refer to my black friends as African-Americans? Um, I would say ask your black friend how they want to be referred to, because honestly, it's different all the way around. If you refer to me, I am a person of African descent. Okay? I also have a lot of other stuff in me. But if you look at me, my mom, my mom says, if you look at our DNA, our little pie chart, it's a map of the slave trade. That's what that is. Wow. 
I am, I, in my body, hold a map of the slave trade. That's, that's what my DNA tells the world, is where we were all over. And it's not just, obviously, it's not just Africa. It, it's Portugal. It is, it is um, uh, Holland. It is a lot of English. There's, I mean, I'm literally like, I think it's 36% European and 25% of, of everything is, is English, right? So, but I could claim that because that's not, that's not how anybody has ever treated me. I'm a person of African descent. And no. I've done my African ancestry DNA, and I know that my on my mom's side, which is what I can trace as a woman, my ancestry goes back to Nigeria. So I am a Nigerian woman of African descent. That's beautiful. Or rather, I should say, I'm a woman of, of Nigerian descent. And the two people groups that I come from are the Hausa people and the Yoruba people. So when you're looking at me, that's who you're looking at. And the house of people? Oh, hello. Thank you. <laughs> Shaw Jackson. I was like, what just <laughs> happened? <laughs> but it's true. That's who I yeah. am. And the house of people have style. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I, yes, I can see that. Lisa, yeah. thank you. Thank you. I know it is not your job to teach us. Um, but you have been a teacher and you are a teacher and thank you for that. Um, I am going to share the, the hell out of this. Um, mm -hmm. And I hope everyone who is listening, you share this too. This is valuable. We are not, we are no longer as people of European descent capable of hiding from this anymore. We are now mm -hmm. in the know. Mm -hmm. And once you know, if you turn away that makes you a bit of an asshole and we're not in the business of being assholes anymore. Okay. Yes. That is the Mr. Rogers lesson for today. We yes. are going to do better and we are going to plant seeds. So thank you, Lisa. Mm -hmm. Have a great day. And um, I appreciate you. All right. Thank bye, you so everyone. much, Meredith. God bless you guys. Thank you. Thank you for joining me on this episode of the same 24 hours. Remember to rate, review, and share this podcast. It really matters. I appreciate it. See you next time.